One of the things that I hear people say, especially this time in late December, is I'm finally in the Christmas spirit. And usually it means something like, I'm ready for the, the music playing incessantly on the radio and at the mall, or uh, I'm past the, the drudgery of all the, the things that you're supposed to do in order to get ready for Christmas, like bake the family cookies and put up the decorations and do all the present shopping, and I'm finally ready to dial down and relax and enjoy a few days off from work and school. I'm ready to be in the Christmas spirit you've nested and you're now ready to enjoy. At the risk of sounding Scrooge-ish, Scroogey, um, neither Frosty nor Rudolph can really get you into the Christmas spirit. No chestnuts roasting or silver bells can accomplish that. Those things are nice, but if that's all we have the sentimental sounds that we associate with Christmas, we have completely missed whatever that means, the Christmas spirit. You know the real reason for the season is the dramatic, world-changing, eternity-impacting, divine intrusion into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the Christmas spirit. The reason for the season is Emmanuel, God with us. It's incarnation, God with us in the flesh, in the person, the humanity of Jesus. And one of the richest ways to really prepare us for the Christmas season is the singing of the great hymns of the faith that proclaim these lasting, eternal, unchanging truths of Jesus Christ in the flesh, like joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. That says something. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That calls for a response because the king has come. How will you recognize his glory? What child is this? We'll sing that in Attic and I think on Christmas Eve. What child is this? The song title asks and the first line asks. On Mary's lap sleeping. It goes on to say something that isn't associated with this lullaby picture of a manger and a mama and her baby. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. That says something. And the song answers its own question. What child is this? This child is the Savior King, majestic in his glory. Here's another favorite. Come thou long expected Jesus. We sung it earlier in Advent, but it's easy to miss so much of its richness. And so with Micah done, 11 weeks from September into Advent, with Lessons and Carols last Sunday, we have one Sunday remaining in Advent today, and what I'd like to do is something a little bit different. I want to unpack this rich hymn of old so that when we sing it right after my message, perhaps we sing it with a little clear glimpse of the glory of this Christ child born in Bethlehem. Perhaps we, we sing it with an enriched faith, waiting again for the second coming of Jesus. This 
poetry that we'll walk through is saturated with biblical references that point to the Messiah's identity and the Messiah's mission. First, a little background. Uh, Charles Wesley was born in 1707 in England. He was the youngest brother of John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement. And Charles, like his father, became a pastor and a poet, a perfect combination that uh, enabled him to become one of the greatest hymn writers of all time and one of the most prolific. Uh, He wrote over 6,500 hymns. I'm not sure if I've done anything of substance more than like 12 times, 6,500 pieces of poetry all giving glory to the king. He wrote, arise, my soul, arise. Christ the Lord is risen today. Rejoice, the Lord is king. He wrote, "Um, hark the herald angels sing, love divine, all loves excelling. You might have heard of the hymn he wrote uh, describing his own conversion experience, and can it be, not a bad hymn, to flow from a pen. And of course, he wrote this morning's focus, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Let's walk through these uh, verses and take a look at some scripture passages along the way. I'll read each verse just so we can kind of marinate on these. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. The hymn starts with an expression of anticipation and longing. The people of old saying, come, we have been waiting for a long time. You are long expected. There was a need and an urgency for a deliverer, for the Messiah, watching and waiting in prayerful hope through the centuries. I'm not sure we know what that's like today, to watch and wait with this great sense of anticipation for God's work in our lives. Um, This is the kind of longing we can identify with in contrast. uh, Our family used to live in Teaneck, a couple of blocks off of Teaneck Road, uh, one of the major commuter corridors of Bergen County. And uh, especially early in the morning, if you're driving on Teaneck Road, you pass group after group, block after block of people all looking in one direction. They're looking out north. They're watching and waiting, hoping that the next green light a few blocks up will cause to appear out of the mist their deliverer, physically, the 167T, not the 167X, because that will just zoom by and ignore you rudely because it's already full. But there's this collective longing for the bus to show up to get me out of the cold and get me into Port Authority so I can get to work. It's the kind of watching and waiting we can relate to. The, the next thing on our list, the next accomplishment. Why isn't there need, anticipation, longing today for the Savior, not to come for the first time, but again to finish what he started? Maybe because, to use the words of the hymn, the desire of every nation is self-glory. 
is economic or military dominance. Maybe because the joy of every longing heart, last line, is for a new smartphone under the tree or a nice bonus or a game console or fill in the blank. Maybe because prosperity and education and technology today have deluded us into thinking that all we need is right here for the taking. Or it's attainable by our own hard work and brilliant minds. We'll figure it out ourselves. The people of old looked for the coming of the Messiah with great anticipation, with a deep need, because there was a greater sense of the supernatural and the eternal. People weren't so full of themselves. Disease, war, and famine were daily reminders of mortality and a need for something beyond the drudgery of this world. Life wasn't so grand that they were tempted to think that heaven was on earth to be enjoyed in the here and now. Sin and guilt were real, not just psychological illusions that should be banished by the power of positive thinking. So people longed for a rescuer, born to do three things, to set his people free, to release us from our fears and sins, and to grant us rest in him. All promises that we come across in the New Testament. Last thought on this verse, back to the text. This Messiah is the hope of all the earth, the desire of every nation, the joy of every longing heart. There are three dimensions. If we can go to the next slide. There's the global, there's the national, there's the individual. Yes, the promise of God is to make all things new in creation, to restore creation, which is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, groaning because creation, our world, is in bondage to decay because of sin. But Jesus is also the one who can satisfy every longing heart individually. This offer of salvation goes out to all the world, but it still has to be received personally through faith in Jesus. Second verse, joy to those who long to see thee, day spring from on high appear. Come, thou promised rod of Jesse, of thy birth we long to hear. O'er the hills, the angels singing, news, glad tidings of a birth. Go to him, your praises bringing, Christ the Lord has come to earth." Day spring is not a word we use, but it comes from old translations like the King James of Luke chapter 1, where Zechariah is prophesying in song after the birth of his miracle baby, born to him and his wife Elizabeth in their old age. That baby is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah's song includes these words, the tender mercy of our God by which the day spring, the rising sun, will come to us from heaven, from on high, day spring from on high. This is a, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. This is the same picture that we find in Isaiah, part of our call to worship this morning. Chapter 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light 
has dawned. The coming of Jesus is pictured as light intervening into and pushing away the darkness of our lives, the darkness of sin and death. Come thou promised rod of Jesse. Charles Wesley was clearly thinking of the book of Isaiah when he wrote this psalm, uh, wrote this hymn. Come thou promised rod of Jesse, straight out of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, that says, a shoot or a rod, again, old translation language from the King James, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. And a stump is exactly what you would picture, what's left of the tree after it's been cut down. There's no sign of life. It's brown. There's no green. There are no no branches coming out of it. And left on its own, it's going to decay. It's going to break down. But God brings life from death. Messiah is that new sapling that shows that life has returned, especially in relation to the kingship uh, that has flowed through King David's descendants and was headed toward the Messiah. Some of you are dreading Christmas. You've not decorated, or maybe you've done it half-heartedly. You're tempted to, and maybe you have, turn down invitations to parties. You'll go through the obligatory family and friends gathering because you're supposed to, because that's what's expected, because this is a time of celebration, but you don't feel like it, maybe because of recent grief or old grief that's rekindled this time of year, maybe because of deep disappointment in your life or loneliness that doesn't seem to have a solution. There's a part of you that would quickly and easily opt out of these gatherings, these parties, if it were socially acceptable, if you didn't have to give an excuse or come up with a reason or be brutally honest. You feel like you're living in a land of deep darkness, but can you see that Christmas is not what you need to avoid because all that festivity out there doesn't fit where you are? Can you see that Christmas is precisely what you need? Can you see that Christmas is precisely this promise of a day spring from on high, the dawn of new life to penetrate darkness, light from on high given to you, in the land of deep darkness. That's, that's the assumption. That's nothing new. That, that's, the, that's the condition into which God sends His Son as a dayspring. The, the coming of Christ is the only hope for real joy that you can cling to, the only solution to your brokenness. And the next verse will help you see how this Jesus intimately knows your sorrows. The royal line of King David, back to the stump of Jesse, and a a shoot or rod will come out of it. The royal line of King David has been long forgotten and assumed to be dead, but it's been kept alive by God. That's the picture here in Isaiah. 
Jesus, when he comes, is the new and final king. So in these words, the people of old are inviting, anticipating, longing for the coming of this new shoot from the stump. This new life, this sapling, of thy birth we long to hear. Waiting and watching, and one day in Bethlehem there's a hint of green coming out of the brown decaying stump, a little shoot that seems so vulnerable, but the shoot will grow and display God's strength even over sin and death. That leads us to the third verse. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness, our redeemer, shepherd, friend. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall, this, the everlasting wonder, Christ was born, the Lord of all. Come to earth to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end. Those two phrases don't really fit together. A God who would taste the trials and tribulations of our earthly existence, but yet the same God whose glories knew no end. Incarnation, coming in the flesh, involved tasting our sadness. More from Isaiah, chapter 53, speaking of the Messiah, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. There's that sort of agricultural, botany context again. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. He whose glories knew no end. Doesn't fit the picture of Isaiah 53. The words that he has come to taste our sadness. God the Son truly knows your suffering. He knows abandonment. He knows rejection. He knows betrayal. He knows physical pain. He came in lowliness, lived in obscurity, died in humiliation. He left glories without end. He left riches without number in the middle in order to be born in a cattle stall. That should shock us. As, as familiar as the Christmas story may be, that should shock us. That should cause us to shake our heads in wonder. But here is the everlasting wonder. Christ was born the Lord of all. And that leads us lastly to the fourth verse. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, Rule in all our hearts alone, by thine own sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Born a child and yet a king. In, in the history of our world, every king in every land has longed to have a son, at least one son, to carry on the line, right? The, the, the family name, the dynasty, to be the next king. But the child is not born a king. He's not yet a king. He's a prince. 
Some kings who have had sons have felt threatened by their child because the child might want to be king prematurely. No child is born a king. Even in 2 Kings 11, in the history of Judah, the kings of the south, Joash is approximately one year old when his father Ahaziah is killed, but he doesn't become king until years later. He's seven years old. This son of David, this child of Joash's line of descendants, the Messiah, he was born a king. He did not have to wait to properly receive the adoration of his majesty. He was born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Earlier in the Lord's prayer, we prayed these words, thy kingdom come. And they're very familiar words in lots of church traditions. Thy kingdom come. In those words, we're saying to God, um, rule and reign over the world and over my life. Reign in us forever. Rule in all our hearts by thine own eternal spirit, right above it. By your own sufficient merit, Jesus, raise us to your glorious throne. According to your perfect righteousness, which is enough, it's sufficient to deserve, to merit the, the perfect approval and love and acceptance of the Father. On that basis, by your own sufficient merit, raise us to your throne. On that basis, connect us to resurrection power and resurrection promises that will give us victory over sin and death on the last day, that will lead us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Uh, just this past week, I read uh, a pastor in this article, write this, a theology of glory is about a ladder to heaven, ascending to God through human strength. A theology of the cross is about God's descent to us in our utter helplessness. Christmas, the real Christmas spirit, shows us which path is of God, not a theology of glory. That'd be self-glory but a theology of the cross. You know, on social media, people follow winners, right? Professional athletes, recording artists, the beautiful, the successful, the brilliant, the ingenious, the funny, people follow winners. Who would follow Jesus today? Who would like his teaching and his example when they regularly upend our me-centered worlds? Only the true gospel of Jesus Christ laid out in these great hymns of the faith that point us to who he, he really is and how he has accomplished salvation. Only the true gospel of Jesus Christ shows us the path of life, a theology of the cross, only the true gospel shows us that through faith in this helpless babe who came as and remains the Lord of all, 
do we enjoy and rest in and revel in, no matter what's going on in our lives, the spirit of Christmas. Let's pray to our Savior, born in Bethlehem. Jesus, rule and reign in us today. Jesus, by your own sufficient merit, raise us to your glorious throne. Jesus, you left the privileges of the right hand of the Father to be born in a cattle stall. You set aside the prerogatives that you were born to have, that you have possessed from all eternity past to humble yourself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, the Father exalted you and gave you the name that is above every name. May we see these truths. May we sing them in praise to you. May we, at the height of this Christmas season, know the true Jesus, the true Christ of Christmas, and bow down and give you, as the Magi did, gifts, not stuff, but the gifts of the sacrifice of our lives, of praise and thanksgiving, of service and obedience and faith, recognizing that you alone are worthy. Jesus, we praise you. Amen.